right, praise God. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 12. And as you do that, I need to just share briefly that God is an awesome God and he is faithful. And the reason why I say that, well, I don't need a reason. He simply is. Amen. But the reason why I say that is because this past week, uh, some of you guys know, but most of you don't, but our church was broken into twice, not once, but twice. And so thousands of dollars of equipment was stolen. Pretty much all of our AV equipment was stolen. Um, and this is a week and a half before Easter. So these precious souls, I'm going to call them criminals, <laughs> but these precious criminals, they uh, broke into our garage by using the keypad, the cops came and said they might have had an RF device to mimic the signal and they got into our garage and stole everything. Um, and yet God is faithful because the, the church of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. Amen. So even though we have no equipment, uh, we quickly got stuff together. It's a little bit patchwork today. That's why I'm holding this mic. I normally like uh, Justin Bieber style, <laughs> but I'm going to be holding this mic today, but we're going to be having service. Amen. And so Easter can't be stopped. God's service can't be stopped. And so God is so good, but I just needed to share that testimony. God is good. And so he has a greater purpose even for that. Amen. Okay. First Corinthians 12, one through 12, but look with me in scripture, but first Corinthians 12, one through 12, and then we're going to look at verses eight through 10. This is God's word 13, eight through 10. If you're joining us here in person, it's going to be up on the screen. If you're joining us online, it'll be on your screen at home. This is God's word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And look at chapter 13, 8 through 10. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Amen. Let's pray. We give you all the glory, and we truly thank you for being such an awesome God. And God, will you please, Lord, as you have already met us, you are here with us during that time of worship. I pray and ask now that you would please meet us through the preaching and hearing of your word. This is worship too. Worship just continues. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would open our hearts, give us clarity and understanding, and give us faith, because there is so much more to the kingdom of God than what many of us know. So please, open our eyes and our hearts to your word. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Hey, praise God. Well, thank you for joining us again as we are journeying through our study of spiritual gifts. And what are spiritual gifts? I'm just going to jump right into it. The spiritual gifts are special abilities that come from the Holy Spirit given to believers as a sovereign gift of God's grace. So it doesn't matter if you were a bad boy or a bad girl and you're not really walking with the Lord. And I shouldn't use that language because God has grace upon us. But even if you have not been walking faithfully with the Lord, you still have that gift. It is still within you and God has not taken it away. It is a gift of God's sovereign grace and is given to serve others. It's not for you to feel good about yourself and puff up yourself, but it's to serve others and is done in the mighty power of God. Is that clear? So that is a spiritual gift. So that's the definition we've been using. There are others that are more simple. Wayne Grudem said a spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. So that is a spiritual gift. And I want to emphasize this, but a lot of times we sit here and we kind of feel like, okay, today's message isn't relevant. Well, every message is relevant. But all the more so today, because if you're sitting here and you've confessed Jesus as Lord and you have the Holy Spirit living within you, guess what? You have a Holy Spirit gift. You have a spiritual gift. And so everything we're talking about today is relevant to you. It applies to you. So spiritual gifts are immediately relevant to us. They are relevant to the unique way God has created you and me. Have you ever wondered, who am I? Who am I in Christ? Who am I supposed to be? Well, spiritual gifts can show you. They are relevant to what God has called you to do. Have you ever wondered, why am I here in this world? Well, spiritual gifts can show you what your role is in this world. Ephesians 2.10 says, You have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do. Have you really thought about that verse? That's an interesting thought about your life, isn't it? But there are things that God has prepared in advance that you don't know what they are, but they are there. And God's like, one day you're going to do these things for me. I want you to do them. And they're waiting for you to do them. And these things are, they're not just little things, but they're significant things that will make an eternal impact in other people and will bring glory to God. And they're just waiting for you to do them. And if you're curious about what these good works are, then how do you know what they are? Discover and use your spiritual gifts and you're going to eventually find them. So spiritual gifts touch on all these different areas. They're immediately relevant to our lives. And yet a lot of people, they just stop right there. They don't look past their own nose, the tip of their own nose, because they just go, oh yeah, I just want to know about spiritual gifts because about me. It's all about me. And yet, as we've seen for the last few weeks, spiritual gifts are vital, not just for you, but also for the building of the church. The church, in fact, cannot even function without spiritual gifts. I've shared this, but before I came and started this church, there were uh, back-to-back uh, semester-length length courses I took. I read a ton of books on church planning, all these charts and all these like blueprints on how to start a church and organize a church. And really, looking back now, all of that was junk. No, I'm just kidding. Some of it was good. But a lot of it was just kind of like, ah, it didn't really help. All somebody had to do was, Roy, look at me, spiritual gifts. <laughs> just help people discover and use their spiritual gifts, and God will do the magic. He will organize the church and begin to beautifully cause the church to function. That's all I had to do. That's all we have to do. So the church cannot function without spiritual gifts. Imagine waking up one morning and you have this terrible condition where suddenly your right hand, your left foot, and both eyes disappear. They're gone. 
Well, I think that would be a very traumatic event. And to say the least, that would affect your day-to-day functioning, right? I mean, that would seriously hinder your functioning. Well, that's exactly the condition of the church. When large numbers of people don't know about gifts, don't care about gifts, don't explore them, don't use them. That's exactly what the church looks like. Like a person without a right hand, left foot, and both eyes were missing. And yet there are many people who say amen to that, and yet they stop there, right? So some people stop at the tip of their nose. They can't see past themselves. Some people can't look past the front doors of the church, and they go, yeah, it's just for here. And yet when you look in the Bible, spiritual gifts are even more than that. But they are central to how Jesus is redeeming the world. Did you know that? Spiritual gifts are at the center of how Jesus Christ is going to redeem the world, is redeeming the world. So in the same way that we use our bodies to do things in the world, right? You can't do anything in the world without your body. Okay, maybe you believe in disembodied spirits. But you can't do anything in the world without your body. In the same way, Jesus, he could do anything he wants, and yet he has chosen to work through his body, which is the church. And how does Jesus work through his body to redeem the world? By giving the church spiritual gifts. So do you see how important spiritual gifts are? So let me say it like this, but anytime Jesus is reaching people somewhere in the world with the gospel, what's going on? Some believer somewhere is exercising his or her spiritual gift. Is that clear? There is not a single person who hears the gospel and gets saved without on the other side of that event, a believer exercising their spiritual gift. There's always a believer involved exercising their spiritual gifts when redemption is happening. That is how Jesus Christ is redeeming the world. And so, for example, let's say this Easter, people come out because you invited them. They hear the gospel and some get saved. How did that happen? It's because some of you exercise your spiritual gifts. And a lot of people during the service exercise their spiritual gifts. Let's say there are people who come next week who haven't been to church in years. But then they come, they get connected, they keep coming, they begin to grow and flourish in their faith. How did that happen? It's because some of you or all of you exercise your spiritual gifts. And so this is at the heart of how Jesus is reaching the world. So I hope that's clear because I've repeated this many times. You know, I have the gift of repetition. It's not a spiritual gift. My wife calls it that. She says, you have the gift of repetition. It's not a spiritual gift, but God can still use it. Amen. I can almost hear my wife saying, amen. Where is she? (laughs) But amen to that. I have the gift of repetition. So I repeat things all the time because I want us to know them, right? So these are the different ways spiritual gifts touch upon our lives. So there are different reasons why they are so vital in our lives and in the world. But they are at the heart of so many things. So what this means is when Paul told the Corinthian church, do not be ignorant about spiritual gifts, I believe that that applies to us even more than to the Corinthian church. Because they were actually pursuing these gifts. They actually loved the gifts, in particular certain ones like tongues and prophecy. And even to that church, Paul said, don't be ignorant about gifts. So how much more to us and to churches today who don't even pursue them? They don't even know about them. Do not be ignorant about spiritual gifts. You know, I have a quick confession to make. But when I was first saved, I grew up in the church. But I believe I first truly got saved in college as a freshman. I remember I started getting really serious about my faith. So I started reading the Bible, trying to study, you know, theology so I thought, right? I'm getting serious. And then I looked around me and I saw that a lot of other Christians were reading books on dating and spiritual gifts. And so you know what I decided in that moment? I'm never going to read two kinds of books, dating 
and spiritual gifts. I didn't want to. I didn't want to read those books. Everyone's reading them, so I had no interest in them. I avoided those books. And so, guess what didn't happen in my life? Dating and spiritual gifts. Exercising spiritual gifts. I had nobody in my life for years, right? Until the point I got desperate, so desperate I cried out to God. Maybe that was a good thing for me. But nothing was happening in my life in terms of dating. But I also was not exercising spiritual gifts. Yeah, I had no concept of them. I didn't care about them. I wasn't interested. Everybody else was reading on it. I didn't want to do that. And so don't be like me. Amen. <laughs> I'm talking about spiritual gifts. You can do what you want with dating. But, but don't be like me in regards to spiritual gifts. You don't ignore it. Don't be ignorant. But spiritual gifts are not a hobby in the Christian life. They're not like a niche interest. Oh, yeah, I'm a little curious. But they are vital for God's call on your life, for the building of the church, for his redemption in the world. Okay, they're vital. So we've been going through spiritual gifts. This year we are called to be the church. Um, it's so vital to that. So this is why we're talking about it. And I've been going through seven different questions on spiritual gifts. Here they are. Why are spiritual gifts necessary? What are spiritual gifts? Who has spiritual gifts? Can you lose your spiritual gifts? How many spiritual gifts are there? So those are all the questions we've been through so far. And last week, we began to look at a very interesting, a little bit controversial question. But are the miraculous gifts for today? So that's question number six. But are the miraculous gifts for today? And when I say miraculous gifts, what am I talking about? Because in one sense, all the gifts are miraculous because all the gifts are super empowered by the Spirit for you to do things that are beyond your normal ability. So they're all supernatural, but I'm talking about the unusual gifts, the gifts that cause people to go, whoa, right? God is here in an unusual way. So what do I mean by miraculous gifts? I'm talking about prophecy, miracles, healings, discerning of spirits, whether something is from the Spirit of God, a human spirit, or the enemy. Deliverance, which is talking about casting out demons. Tongues, which is a spiritual language or a known language that you did not learn. I actually know a pastor in Oaxaca, Mexico, who immediately learned how to speak Spanish in a moment. He never learned it. He's fluent in Spanish. That could be one expression of that, or it could be a, a heavenly language. And I know many, many people, even in my own life, of people who speak a heavenly language. The gift of tongues, and then the interpretation of tongues. I've actually had that done to me where a pastor... He was actually a missionary in Africa, worked with lepers for many, many years. I think he might still be there. But he had the gift of tongues, prayed for me, and his wife interpreted. So that was a very unusual experience. <laughs> but I remember that happening. But these are the gifts that I'm talking about. These are the ones that are mentioned by name in our passage in 1 Corinthians. And so what do we do with these gifts? Are these gifts still for today? And why is that even important? Well, it's important because... How you answer this question directly impacts the way you see God working in the world, right? It directly affects the way you see God working in your life and in the people all around you. And it also affects the way you will partner with God and what you will expect from God. So often we don't get things from God because we don't expect anything from God. James said that. You have not because you ask not. I would even add you don't expect. You expect not. And so it affects all these different things, how God is working around you, how you partner with God, what you expect from God. So let me ask again, are miraculous gifts for today? And there are only two ways to answer this question. I already mentioned them last week. First, you can say no. Miraculous gifts are not for today. God can still do miracles occasionally. God can do whatever he wants. But consistently through his body, 
people having these spiritual gifts that are miraculous? No. God doesn't do that today. And if that's the way you answer that question, you are a cessationist. Okay, I'm not going to go through the whole thing about the difference between cessationism and leaving the U.S. Okay, you know. <laughs> but cessationist. Okay, this is somebody who believes the gifts have ceased. Okay, they are no longer around. In contrast, if you answer yes, the miraculous gifts are for today. Not only does God work miracles, but he seems to do them through people exercising specific spiritual gifts. Like the gift of healing, the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, whatever it may be. The gift of deliverance. If that is your answer, you are a continuationist. For obvious reasons, because you believe the gifts continue. Okay, so it's very straightforward, but those are the only two ways you can answer. And I realize that at our church, there are probably people on both sides. So I realize that. I personally have friends on both sides. And from what I can tell, both groups love the Lord. Both groups believe in the Bible. Both groups preach the true gospel. So this isn't about whether you're a true believer or not. And so I have a lot of grace towards believers on either side. I really do. And so whatever side you fall on, I have a lot of grace and you can talk to me. Okay, I'm not going to shut you down. <laughs> At least not over that. <laughs> but having said that, okay, I'm going to be very clear here. I do believe that cessationists and their view, which is cessationism, have very little support in scripture. And people get surprised when I say that, when I tell that to my friends who are cessationists. I say, you have very little support in scripture. Because they're known as the Bible people, right? It's like, we're the Bible people. You guys are the ones all about emotion, experiences. I know. When I look at scripture, your, your position and your belief on this has very little support. I've never heard an argument for cessationism from the Bible that convinced me. And if it did, then I would be a cessationist myself. But I've never heard an argument that convinced me. Especially, and we're going to look at some today, especially when you look at clear teachings in scripture that seem to say the opposite. That those gifts are still here today so there there's no argument i've heard that has convinced me and so this is how i'm really approaching this topic i did it last sunday i'm approaching it this way uh, today as well but i really want to know what the bible has to say about it don't you i really want to know what does the bible have to say about this yes your experiences are important your background is important the church you grew up in is is important i'm not denying the church you grew up in if you have a different view i'm influenced by those things as well but more than all of those things, I want to know what the Bible has to say. And that should be your stance as well. You should want to know on any position that you believe in, what does the Bible have to say? You know, I'm not going to go into any of this. If you want to hear more about my personal beliefs and also the beliefs of the church, come to membership class. But that's how I approach anything in the Christian life. My view on salvation. Yeah, I happen to be reformed. You don't need to know what that means, but that's my stance. But that's my conclusion based on scripture. My view on men and women. In ministry, men and women's roles, I happen to be complementarian. It's based on scripture. I happen to be Baptist. I believe in dunking people underwater. It comes from scripture. Okay, I, I have certain views on the end times. Why? Because it comes from scripture. I have certain views on spiritual gifts. Why? Because that's what I see in scripture. So that should be your position as well. Do you see it in scripture? Can I prove it from scripture? Not because my favorite pastor on my po podcast told me, right? But what does the Bible say? And again, when I look at scripture, I don't believe it teaches cessationism. And in case you think I'm biased against cessationism, maybe you're thinking, yeah, Roy, well, it's because you grew up that way. Maybe you just went to a charismatic church. I didn't, by the way. I grew up in a Presbyterian church. Very Presbyterian. <laughs> I was sprinkled when I was little. I don't know. I don't, is that very Presbyterian? I don't know. But 
But I'm not biased against cessationism. In fact, that was probably my, my view for most of my childhood growing up. And I want to make it clear, there is a lot that happens among charismatics and people who exercise miraculous gifts that is unbiblical. Yeah, a lot. And a lot that is very concerning. I remember having this one debate one time. This wasn't as concerning, but this one woman who is in my college ministry, this young student, and we're kind of debating a little bit because she came from a charismatic background where everybody prayed in tongues all together out loud at church. And I told her, I don't think that's biblical because Paul straight up said, don't do that unless there's an interpreter. Paul straight up said, do it just in turn, one at a time, with an interpreter. Don't just do it all together. And she tried to convince me otherwise. I'm like, I don't think that's biblical. So whatever position it may be, you got to show it to me in scripture. But there is a lot happening in the charismatic world where I think it's very unbiblical, very concerning. So like idolizing of miracles. I remember this one pastor one time straight up said at the beginning of service, you know, we love Jesus and all, but today we want to encounter angels. And so they were all about meeting angels that day. And I'm like, this is so unbiblical. The Bible is never about that. It is always about Christ. I want to know Christ and him crucified. The center of worship is always Christ, not encountering angels. So idolizing of miracles, the showboating that takes place, people bragging about what kind of gifts on stage, pastors even, worldliness, silliness, yeah, acting like they're literally drunk in the spirit on the stage, just gibbering and talking baby talk. I've seen that on YouTube. The peddling of false gospels like the prosperity gospel, minimizing the word of God. So a lot of these things are in that movement. These are people who believe in all the gifts. I've even seen pastors making a mockery of the gift of tongues. I've seen this pastor talking to another pastor on the stage in front of thousands of people speaking in tongues. Again, they shouldn't be doing that. Paul said, don't do that if there's no interpreter. But they were doing that and they weren't doing it to pray. They were doing it to tell each other jokes. So they thought the whole thing was very funny. But I've seen pastors do that. I've seen pastors telling desperate, sick people, you need to plant a bigger seed of faith. What they mean is give more money if you want to be healed. Got to give more money. So I've seen that. I've seen church leaders comparing the Holy Spirit to the big blue genie in Aladdin. I was so shocked when I heard that. The Holy Spirit is not like the big blue genie in Aladdin. <laughs> Nothing like him. And so all of that is disgusting. Okay, God's judgment is upon all of it, I believe. So no way am I defending any of that. And in fact, I agree with cessationists who criticize all of that. So I agree with them. But just because sinful human beings and the enemy have ruined a gift from God, should we throw the whole thing out? Right? Should we throw the whole thing? No. If that's the case, we should throw marriage out. Right? We've made a huge mess out of marriage, <laughs> us Christians. So we should throw away marriage. But no, we don't throw the whole thing out. But rather, what we should do is go back to the Bible, to our highest authority, and see what it has to say. We don't want to miss out on what God has for us. So last week, we were looking at four arguments for cessationism. And I gave my response to those arguments. These are not my responses, but these are responses I've read over the years from very thoughtful theologians. I added my own interpretation, my own illustrations. But these are responses you can find anywhere out there. Just Google it. But we looked at four different arguments for cessationism. You can find it online if you missed it and the responses. And today what I want to look at are four arguments, new arguments for continuationism. So does the Bible teach continuationism? That all the miraculous gifts are still here today. And I believe it does. So let me just jump into it. So argument number one, the sufficiency of scripture argument. So you might be thinking, hmm, that sounds familiar. Well, it's familiar because that was the first argument that the cessationists had. They said, 
we believe that all the gifts are no longer needed because we have the Bible. The Bible is enough. It is sufficient. Well, I'm going to turn the tables on them. And again, I, I love my association as brothers and sisters. They're fellow believers. But I'm going to turn the tables on them. And I'm going to say, well, I think the sufficiency of Scripture shows continuationism, that the gifts are still here today. So why is that? Well, cessationists basically say once Christ came, died, and rose again, the apostles were authorized to write the Bible. And how do we know that they were authorized to write the Bible? They exercised miraculous gifts. So if someone is raising the dead and healing the sick and opening blind eyes, you're like, whoa, you must come from God, right? And they're preaching the gospel. So they were authorized to write the Bible. We know that because they were performing miraculous gifts. And once the Bible was finished, cessationists say, we don't need the gifts. Their task is done. The apostles laid the foundation for the church. The Bible's written. It's done. So once that task is done, no more miraculous gifts. So what are they saying? The Bible is all we need. That's all we need now. It is sufficient. So that is their key argument. Now, last week I said that I also believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Yeah, I also believe in this. Yes, the Bible is all we need. But it depends on how you define it. So please track with me here. Today we're going to go through a little bit more like detailed arguments and we're going to look at a lot of scriptures. But I also believe in the sufficiency of scripture, but it depends on how you define it, right? I don't define it as we don't need anything outside the Bible, period. The Bible is all we need. That's not the way I define it. I don't believe that's what it means. And we know that's not true because there are many things that the Bible itself points to outside itself, right? And so I'll mention a few of these things in a little bit. But things like prayer. But it points to things outside the Bible that we need. I mentioned last week, it's kind of like a survival manual. Remember I mentioned about how if you were to meet the greatest survivalist in the world and he handed you a manual and he said, hey, this is all you need to make it in the wilderness. Okay, you would know immediately what he meant. Okay, he is not talking about if you need to eat, tear out the pages and eat it. It's rice paper. You know, I used to love rice paper. I used to like, <laughs> if you're Asian, you know what I'm talking about. But, but rice paper. It's, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying if you need to light a fire, hey, use this book, light it on fire. Or if you need a drink, squeeze it out and water will come out. That's not what he meant. But what he means is this is all you need. It, need. Within it is all the guidance, all the knowledge, all the truth that will help you to survive in the wilderness. So you, immediately you know that's what he meant. There are things in the manual that point beyond the manual that you need that are vital. Now, that's not a perfect analogy because in many ways the Bible itself gives us benefits, unlike a survival manual, but the Bible itself is food and drink. I understand that. But there are many things that the Bible is pointing to outside itself that we need. And so clearly, the Bible is sufficient, but not there's nothing we need outside the Bible. Yeah, that's not what it means. So cessationists wouldn't say that either, but that's basically what they're saying. That's basically what they're arguing for. When they say, we don't need miraculous gifts because we have the Bible now. Okay, that's kind of what they're saying. You don't need anything outside the Bible because this is what you have. And yet the Bible is pointing to those things. It's pointing beyond itself to those things. So many cessationists, they use 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 to back up their view. They also use Hebrews 1, 1. We're not going to look at that one. If you are curious, we can talk about it later. But 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so this is the verse they use. See, the Bible is all you need. You don't need anything else. And yet, as I pointed out last week, look at that verse again. 
Their argument is not there. What they are arguing for is not in that verse. That the miraculous gifts were only there to authorize the apostles to write scripture. And once the Bible is finished, you don't need the gifts. It doesn't say that. It's not even implied there. So that is the first thing that we need to know. We need to understand all this. But contrary to what these cessationists are saying, I think these verses actually support the miraculous gifts, that they are still here today. I think it still it supports that. And why do I say that? Well, it's because the Bible not only gives us many benefits itself, but it points to many things beyond itself, as I've been saying. And what is the Bible pointing to? Things that will equip us, that will train us in righteousness. Doesn't it say that all scriptures breathe out by God and profitable? That the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the Bible is pointing to many things outside itself to train us, to equip us, so that we could do any good work. And what is one area that we need to be equipped in to do good works? You think with me. What is one very important area you need to be equipped in to do good works? Spiritual gifts, right? Spiritual gifts, including the miraculous gifts. And so the Bible clearly is pointing to this all the time, beyond itself. Spiritual gifts are not the same thing as the Bible. They are in the Bible. They are discussed in the Bible. The Bible is the true, accurate representation of the gifts. And yet they are not the same thing as the Bible, right? Gifts are different. And so the scripture is pointing to them so that we may be equipped in them. Does that make sense? And so if that is one thing we need, desperately need to do every good work, then you can assume that the Bible must talk about it. It must teach us about it, right? And if you assume that, you are right. That is exactly what we see in the New Testament. Are you tracking with me? Does this make sense? The Bible is pointing beyond itself to these gifts because we need it to be equipped, which is exactly what 2 Timothy 3.16 is saying. We see teaching after teaching on spiritual gifts. And here's what's interesting. Paul and Peter, who are the ones who wrote the most on it, they don't make any distinction between the more normal everyday spiritual gifts and the more miraculous gifts. They don't make any distinction. They just throw them all together. So let me mention a few passages. This is by no means a complete list, but hopefully you can get a picture. 1 Corinthians 12.1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant. And then he launches into all this teaching on it, right? It's important. You need to know this. So he goes on in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's not for you. It's for everyone else. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. I think these gifts are more normal. This is just someone who has this particular wisdom about them, or this knowledge, ability to gather knowledge, understand knowledge. But then he moves right along to another faith by the same Spirit. Maybe another more normal gift, right? Just believing, knowing that you know that God will do something, that he will come through on his word. But faith. But then he moves on. He just kind of throws them all together to another gift of healing by the one spirit. See, it's the same spirit. It's not a different spirit. He's not making any distinction. It's all the same. It's all the same. To another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Do you see that? It's all just thrown in together. Paul's saying, you need to know this. Just like 2 Timothy 3.16 said, you need to be equipped in this for every good work. Don't be ignorant. And he just goes into all the gifts. 1 Corinthians 14, 27, 29. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at the most. I mentioned that earlier. Paul's very specific. And each should take their turn 
Very specific. Don't just all start praying out loud together. I think that's unbiblical. A lot of charismatic churches do that. Again, I'm not, I'm not like some judge upon them. I'm just pointing out what the Bible says. If you grew up in a church like that, you went to an unbiblical church. I mean, no, I'm not going to say that, actually. I shouldn't even joke about that. I sh- I'm sorry. Okay, if you went to a church like that, I think that one area was not a biblical practice. But, but this is very clear in Scripture. But it says, don't pray all out loud together. Each should take their turn. Let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. So if there's nobody to interpret, then don't even pray in tongues, Paul says. Okay, do everything in order. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So my brothers earnestly desire the prophecy to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. And there are so many believers today who directly go against that command. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. And what do we do? We forbid speaking in tongues. And so what am I saying? Paul is giving very specific instructions here. Why? Because we need to be equipped. Romans 12, 6 through 7. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So here he's saying you need these spiritual gifts, but use them in accordance to the grace given to you. Not everyone has them in the same degree, the same level of effectiveness. Let us use them. If prophesy to prophecy, then prophesy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving to the one who teaches in his teaching. And then he goes on. So there are different levels of spiritual gifts according to your faith. See, Paul's teaching us. First Thessalonians 5, 19 through 20, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. So a lot of people, they struggle with prophetic revelation, not apart from scripture, not contrary to scripture, but, but what is this whole prophecy thing? Paul, I think, tells us very clearly, do not quench the spirit. How do you quench the spirit? By despising prophecies. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that. Don't quench the spirit by despising prophecies, but rather test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Throw away what is bad. Paul's saying sometimes it won't be it won't be right. So what does that mean? God gave the revelation correctly. We're just fallen instruments. It didn't get through us correctly. But Paul's saying that can happen. So what am I saying? There's a lot of instruction here. Very specific, very detailed. How many people should speak? At what time? Who should speak? Who shouldn't speak? How we should operate in these gifts? And there's a lot of detailed instruction. So what am I saying? Do you see how the Bible is sufficient? See, I'm turning the tables on them. It is sufficient to do what? Equip us for every good work, including the spiritual gifts, the miraculous gifts. So the Bible gives us benefit in and of itself, yes, but it also points to things beyond itself that we need if we're going to be equipped to serve the Lord. So I hope that is clear, but contrary to what cessationists say, I believe the sufficiency of Scripture argument supports miraculous gifts as a necessary part of our equipping, our being built up. So Scripture is uh, continuously pointing to them beyond uh, itself to these things. So that is the first argument. The second argument is the age of the spirit argument. The age of the spirit argument. And in my mind, this is the most convincing one. In my mind, this is probably the one that makes me a continuationist. So please bear with me. Again, today is a little different. We're going to just be running through a lot of scriptures here. But the age of the spirit argument. And it's very interesting, but there are so many cessationists that I've read or listened to online or friends that I've talked to, and they don't ever seem to talk about this. But what is this argument? But basically this argument is when you look at scripture from the very beginning all the way to the end, you see this narrative 
Okay, people call it biblical theology, but there's this story, this narrative that begins to unfold. And what you begin to see, there's many different, like a dozen different narratives, like all different kind of storylines. There's a storyline about the temple, about the seed of the sun. I mean, there's all these different narratives. But one narrative that you see early on is the narrative of the age of the spirit. There is this age that is coming. Church, there is this age, people of God, that is going to break open on the world and it's going to be the age of the spirit. And it's going to be characterized by certain things. And you see that very early on in the Bible. But in Numbers 11.29, Moses, one of the first ones to mention it, some people were criticizing these people prophesying in the camp of Israel. And they said, hey, Moses, tell them to like stop it because you're the only prophet. And this is what Moses said. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Did you hear Moses? He said, don't stop them. I'm longing for the day, the age when everyone's going to prophesy and the spirit of God is going to be filling every person because in the Old Testament, it was only select individuals. And so Moses was looking ahead. He was inspired by God. He said that. Later, Ezekiel 36, 26, God said through this prophet, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. So that age is coming. The age of the Spirit is coming. He's going to literally change your heart. Joel 2, 28, 29. This is the glorious promise. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. When he said afterward, I think he meant after the Messiah comes. But afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons, on your daughters, they shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the whole male and female servants in these days, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Do you see that? Joel was living thousands of years before this happened. But he was looking ahead. He was looking ahead. John the Baptist, finally, in the New Testament, when he comes on the scene, what did he do? He predicted again, even just a few years from his own life. I am predicting this new dawning of the age of the spirit. Luke 3.16. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In a very short time from now, this age of the Spirit is coming. You look for it. When Jesus finally came, he openly invited people now because he is now ushering in the age of the Spirit. He's openly inviting people now to enter this new age of the Spirit through belief in him. John 7, 37-39, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, capital S, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Do you believe in Jesus? You have the Holy Spirit running through you like the rivers. Okay, Christians, I, I genuinely believe this. We all have our ups and downs, but you should never have an extended period of feeling dry. Yes, we go through times of that, but it should never be this ongoing season of dryness and God is far away and I don't know where he... Jesus said, if you believe in me, there will be rivers of living water pouring through your life. Talking about the Spirit. And so he said, this is the reality of the age of the Spirit. And what would be the signs that flow everyone who believes in Jesus, who has the Spirit flowing through them? Okay, the age of the Spirit is coming, is coming. But what are the signs once it's here for the people who believe? 
Jesus said, Mark 16, 15 through 18, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. They will drink anything deadly. It will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, did Jesus mean that literally? I mean, we can debate that, but he said it. Now, some people might say, well, wait a minute there. Hold on. This isn't in the most, you know, credible, like, manuscripts, Mark 16, 15 through 18, and we can talk about that later. <laughs> but it is in some of the earliest manuscripts we have. So what does this tell us? Yeah, it might not be in the earliest manuscripts, and that's why your Bible probably has it set off a little bit. But it was in the earlier manuscripts. And so what this means is the early church, very early on, believed Jesus said this. So again, we could debate that. We could talk about it. But I believe Jesus said this. Very early on, the church began to put this into their Bible. And then finally, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, what happened? Are you tracking with me? This is the age of the Spirit, brothers and sisters. What happened after Jesus came, died, rose again, and went to heaven? He poured out the Spirit. The age of the Spirit is now finally here. And what did Peter say? People thought they were drunk because they were praying in tongues. And what did Peter say? He said, we're not drunk. It's 9 in the morning. I don't drink, but I I get that. Who drinks at 9 in the morning? And he said, I'll tell you what's happening. And then he quoted Joel 2, what we just looked at. Joel 2, 28, 29. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall all prophesy. What, what is that? Pa- Peter is saying, this is the age of the spirit. It has broken in now. We are living now in this age of the spirit that the Old Testament saints were looking towards for thousands of years. You know, the picture I get is kind of like a river flowing down these banks, and then there's a dam of hardened hearts and unbelief like a dam of rocks and mud and branches. And this river of the Spirit, the age of the Spirit is rushing down, right? All these prophets are looking ahead towards it. And then it slams against that. And it slams against it again. And then it finally just breaks through. That's the picture here. It finally broke through all that hardness of heart and unbelief. And now the age of the Spirit is here. I remember this one theologian, the beautiful picture he got is when a city is being built, they always put in the waterworks, right? And then there's that first moment when the waterworks are turned on and suddenly the pipes are filled with living water, you know, fresh water for people to drink. Well, that was Pentecost. The waterworks were turned on. And now for once and for all now, the Spirit is here. He is large and active. He is at large and he's working. That is what Peter is saying. And how do we know? How do we know this age of the Spirit? Yeah, how can you tell? Very clearly. He quoted Joel. In the last days, when I pour out my spirit on all flesh, young men are going to prophesy and see visions. Young men, uh, old men are going to dream dreams, right? Male servants. So, so it doesn't matter who you are, great, small, male, female, you're all going to be showing these signs. So to me, this is probably the greatest argument why the gifts are still here today. It makes no sense whatsoever if you follow the line of argument of cessationists. Well, the gifts are only there to, until the Bible is finished. And the Bible is finished only 50, 60 years after Jesus. John the Apostle was the last author of the Bible. So those gifts are only there. What is quoted here in Joel 2 
right? Peter repeated it in Acts 2. That's only for 50, 60 years, and now it's gone? It makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense whatsoever. But rather, Peter gave the time frame for these gifts in the last days. And let me ask you guys, when are the last days? Do you guys know? Right now. It is right now. Every theologian agrees, even cessationist theologians. They all agree the last days are between Jesus' first coming and second coming. So Peter gave the time frame. In the last days, during the last days, I would even say throughout the last days. And don't take my word for it. But D.A. Carson said that. But the coming of the Spirit is not associated merely with the dawning of the new age. He meant the new age of the Spirit. Not merely with Pentecost, but with the entire period from Pentecost to the return of Jesus the Messiah. That entire time is the last days, and it's going to be marked by all these signs. It seems pretty direct and very clear to me. So do you see this argument here? Okay, this is the age of the Spirit argument. It is not just one obscure verse or, you know, some kind of a circumstantial evidence. I mean, this is repeated again and again and again and again, clearly stated. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. When it comes, this is what you're going to see. This is what will happen, and it's going to keep happening during this age. What is it? The miraculous gifts. This is the age of the Spirit. And so it's going to keep going until Jesus returns again. And so should we see that in Scripture? Yeah, we do. We see that exact point in Scripture. Again, not circumstantially implied, directly stated. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. I remember reading this one book on cessationism, and the author said, this is the hardest passage for cessationists to argue away. So he, he confessed that. He acknowledged it. When you read this, this is very, very hard to deny or argue away. Paul made it very clear. Peter said, here's the time frame you're going to see these miraculous gifts throughout the entire last days, right? Paul made it very clear, when are they going to come to an end? When the perfect comes. What's the perfect? The Bible. No, it's not the Bible. Some people argue it's the Bible, but almost nobody believes in that today. In the past, some people said the perfect is the Bible. No. Paul told us what the perfect is. In context, what did he say? When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And then the next verse, he says, we will be known as we are fully known when we are face to face. Face to face with who? Jesus Christ. So what is the perfect? The perfect is the perfect eternal state that we're going to be in when Jesus returns again. Every theologian worth their salt agrees with that. That is what Paul's talking about. Not when the Bible's finished. When Jesus comes back and we are now in the eternal state, in the perfect state. And to me, this makes perfect sense. No pun intended. It, it makes perfect sense. Why? Why would the gifts go away during that time? When Jesus comes back, now we're perfected. Why? Well, who needs to prophesy or speak in tongues in this mysterious spiritual language when Jesus is right in front of you? Who needs to do that? Okay, uh, stop prophesying. Just talk to Jesus. He's right there, right? Just get a hamburger at In-N-Out in heaven because In-N-Out is going to be in heaven and we're going to just go talk to Jesus, right? We're just going to go talk to him and we're going to fellowship. Why do you need prophecy? Why do you need to speak in tongues? Okay, why do you need healing? Everyone's healed in heaven. I mean, it's just like the most simple, direct argument that makes perfect sense. That's when it's going to come to an end. Not when the Bible's finished. It's when Jesus comes back. And now we are perfected. It makes total sense to me. Until then, Paul said, we see as through a mirror dimly. 
And that's another perfect uh, description of these gifts. They're very valuable. They're very precious. And yet it's kind of like when you come out of the shower and the mirror is fogged over. And you're like, I want to see myself, right? And it's very foggy. It's very dim. But that's how these gifts are. But when you're prophesying or trying to understand a vision that God gave you while you're doing your quiet time or something like that, it, it is dim. It is like that. But one day, Paul says, all of that will go away. And so this is very clear, is repeated again and again and again. This age of the Spirit's coming is coming. Once it comes, it'll be the last days. And these are the signs that will accompany the last days. Not just the beginning, but the entire last days. Jesus' first coming until his second coming. And then Paul is very clear. It, it feels like a puzzle. And that's when these gifts will go away, when Jesus returns again. Makes perfect sense. And so in the meantime, then what will you expect? You will expect that in the church age, which is synonymous to the age of the Spirit, because the church age is between Jesus' first coming and second coming. During the church age, what should you see, at least in Scripture, that churches should be marked by these miraculous gifts, right? That should be your assumptions. And when you look at Scripture, again, like a puzzle, that's what you see. New Testament churches were characterized by miraculous gifts. Not just the apostles, but you see all the believers operating in these gifts. So normal Christians were operating in the miraculous gifts. It was a part of everyday church life in the New Testament. So look at 1 Corinthians 12.28. God is appointing in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then miracles. I think the literal translation is miracle workers. Miracle workers. Then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. I like that passage because it separates out miracle workers from apostles. Paul didn't lump them together. Okay, it's not just the apostles who did miracles. Everyday Christians did. Galatians 3.5, does he who supplies the spirit to you, Galatians, total different church, and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. So here he's challenging them, how are you guys doing miracles? Because miracles are happening in your church. Okay, is it because you're good? Boy and girl? No, it's because you have faith and the Spirit works by hearing with faith. Faith in the Word of God. Faith in the Gospel. So do you see that? So it characterized the New Testament church. And I could pull out passages from Romans, Thessalonians. Okay, every New Testament church, I would say Antioch, there were miraculous workings happening. So it makes you wonder, okay, what, what, what is going on in the church today? What's going on in our church? Again, I'm not, I'm not like trying to push this onto anybody. I mean, I want to be thoughtful. I want to be biblical. No matter what, we must be biblical. But I'm just asking these questions. It characterizes the New Testament church, which again is a perfect puzzle piece. That's exactly what you would expect if this is the characteristics of the church age and the spirit age. Okay, are you guys with me? So this is the longest argument that I want to present. This is the big one. This is probably... The main reason I'm a continuationist, I cannot deny the repeated statements of Scripture again and again and again, clearly stating what these gifts are for and when they're going to happen, when they're going to end, again and again and again. It was not until the Bible was finished being written. There's no verse like that in Scripture. I don't find it. But rather, I see repeated statements again and again of what I just said. They mark the age of the Spirit until Jesus returns again. Okay. Number uh, three, the purpose of miracles argument. So let's run through these more quickly now. Okay, the purpose of miracles argument. Okay, now this one is important, so stick with me again. But this one is important because cessationists say the main reason that we don't believe in gifts today 
is because the purpose was to just authenticate the apostles until they finished writing the Bible. That is what they say again and again and again. I've talked to many of them. But that's what they say. They say it is to prove that the apostles are from God and they have authority to write the Bible. That is the main reason, if not some say the only reason, for these miraculous gifts. The more normal gifts, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's for the church and helping people. But these miraculous ones is only for that purpose. But is that what we see in Scripture? Again, I would say no. I would say no. So I see several different purposes for miraculous gifts in the Bible. But let me just mention them, and we're going to just run through it. Number one, to bear witness that the gospel is from God. To bear witness that the gospel is from God. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. How shall we accept if we neglect... Oh, I'm sorry. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So there is very clear. One purpose of miraculous gifts is to testify the gospel. You know, I heard the statistic, uh, Craig Keener, I mentioned them last week, but he said 90% of believers in Nepal, Nepalese Christians, came to faith through signs and wonders. 90%. So without signs and wonders, you wouldn't even have a Nepalese church, the church in Nepal. But there are so many testimonies of that. And even in the Middle East right now, I know that it is one of the hardest places to preach the gospel and for the gospel to take root. And yet there are droves of people becoming converted. How? Because Jesus is appearing to them in visions and dreams. And Jesus makes it very clear. I am the one who's been crucified that you're denying. And so many of them come to faith. I've heard witnesses testifying on YouTube. You can't trust everything on YouTube, but these people seem very sincere. But I've heard of that. I've heard of that many times. So this is to bear witness that the gospel is from God. Number two, to show God's kingdom has broken into people's lives. What's the clearest way that you can know that God is here? He is working. Well, through the preaching of the gospel, through the accurate and faithful preaching of the word, yes. But what else? Through signs and wonders. That's what the Bible says. Matthew 12, 28. If it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How do you know the kingdom of God has come upon your life? I drove out that demon in you. That's what Jesus said. I cast it out, and that's how you know the kingdom of God is on you. Number three, to show God's compassion to people in dire need. And so we know that's true. Jesus regularly healed people miraculously out of compassion, and then not only him, but the disciples did that too now. It was carried on. And not just the apostles, but just regular Christians in the New Testament church. So Matthew 14, 14, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So that was clearly one reason. Acts 3, 6 through 7, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. He said that to a lame man. He had compassion on him. I don't have money to give you, but I have this. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised them up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Now, I understand as I'm running through this, you guys, I know this just sounds like stories and theory, but I'm telling you, if this is what God has for the church, then these are the purposes he has for these gifts, brothers and sisters. These are the purposes he has. He wants to show his love to people, his compassion. How? Through love, you know, serving each other, but also through these gifts. We need to understand that. Number four, to bring the church to maturity and the fullness of Christ. That is a clear, clear purpose for spiritual gifts. Ephesians 4, 8, 
And then 11 through 13, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, Jesus led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and women. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until, and that word is so important, until. Circle that. Why is that important? Because Paul is telling us, when are these gifts are going to be functioning in the church? Until when? Until the Bible's finished being written? Until when? When are these gifts needed? Until when? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Basically, until we're all like Jesus. Are you like Jesus? <laughs> Am I like? No, I'm not like Jesus. So until, until when should these gifts be in operation within the church? Paul is saying to the Ephesians, until when? Until the Bible's finished? No, until you're like Jesus. And if you're not like Jesus, then these gifts are still necessary. And again, he doesn't make any distinction between the miraculous and the normal, more normal gifts. They're all just mentioned together. You can read that Ephesians 4 chapter. So to bring the church to maturity, number five, to do good to other believers in the church. It's not just for yourself, for your own identity, but it's to bless others. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another knowledge, and then he goes on and on. But it is for the common good. It is for the blessing of other believers. So is that clear? So what am I saying? Okay, what, what does this all mean? What this means is cessations. And again, these are brothers and sisters that are precious to me and I have friends. So it's not like I'm trying to like, you know, beat them over the head. But if your argument that these gifts are no longer around is mainly, if not only, these gifts were there so that the apostles could write the Bible. And once it's done, they're gone. If that is your argument, then what about all these other purposes? You need to prove, you need to kind of prove that, yeah, all these purposes don't really apply to miraculous gifts. Miraculous gifts were only given for that one purpose. Yeah, that's what that, that's what you have to show to make your case and I don't think it's possible it's not doable miraculous gifts were given for all these other purposes and these are things that need that we need today okay so that is argument number three and then we're going to close with this but the historical evidence argument and so now I'm going to turn the tables one more time because that just sounds familiar last week we talked about how cessation is say you know when I look at the world today it is nothing like the new testament there aren't gifts like the new testament or miracles like the new testament i mean what are you talking about and they actually even argue that once john the apostle died he finished writing revelation and then he died they say that miracles just faded away and they're gone there aren't miracles in the church throughout most of his history and I, again i would beg to differ i would beg to differ again go back to acts 2 17 Peter said, in the last days, when are the last days? Right now. Jesus' first coming all the way to his second coming. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit and all these gifts and these sign gifts are going to be seen. Visions, prophesying, tongues. Okay, in the last days. So then if we believe in the word of God, that this is the marker of the last days, then what should we see? We should see these gifts all throughout church history. Now, are you going to see it at equal strength? No. Okay, they're going to be diminishing at certain times. They're going to be increasing. Why? Because we're fallible, right? We're sinful human beings. I mean, are you walking with God at the highest point all the time? No. Do you have the most faith that you should have? No. 
So we will see an ebb and flow going up and down. And yet you should see miracles all throughout the church age. In these last days, you will see all these things. And so you do. You do see these things. And so people, they don't realize this, but there are repeated testimonies throughout church history. Again, it's not the same as the New Testament. There are times of more or less. But you see this repeated again and again. Justin Martyr, he lived between 100 AD to 165 AD. Well, listen to him. But he said, For one receives the spirit of understanding, another of counsel, another of strength, another of healing, another of foreknowledge, another of teaching, another of the fear of God. For one receives the spirit of understanding, another of counsel, another of strength, another of healing, another of foreknowledge, another of teaching, another of the fear of God. So what is he saying there? He's just saying, I see all these gifts. He mentioned healing there. I think he mentioned visions, prophesying. So Justin Martyr saw these gifts. Arrhenius, he testified. He was in 120 AD to 202 AD. Tertullian, he testified. Again, I'm not going to read everything because you can look it up easily. Google. Google is your friend. But Tertullian, 225 AD, he mentioned these gifts. Clement of Alexandria, AD 215. Now we're in the 200 ADs, right? He mentioned these gifts in the church. Hippolytus, AD 236, he mentioned the gifts. Theodotus, late 2nd century, he mentioned gifts. I'm talking about the miraculous gifts. Eusebius of Caesarea, AD 260 to 339. So now we're in the 300 ADs. The gifts are still there in the church. Blaise Pascal. Okay, Blaise Pascal is amazing, but you guys know the Pascal wager. Do you guys know that? Okay, I'm not going to go through the Pascal wager, but it's basically a way to know um, whether it's a good idea to believe in God and go to heaven than to not believe in God and chance going to hell. He says that's a bad wager. You can look it up. But Pascal, he was a mathematician, lived in France, but he had a niece with a running eyesore, and it was very public. It stunk. People knew that she was suffering. And yet, they were in this one service, this worship service with this liturgy going on, and then something touched their eye, and in that moment, God healed their eye instantly. And it was publicly known. It was so publicly known that the Queen Mother of France sent her own physician to check it out, and so it was documented physician said yeah your eye looks better it's completely healed and in fact it, it stirred the pot so much that David Hume this is way later this is the 1800s but David Hume used that as kind of like one of the points that he really wrestled with and argued about miracles because he wrote about miracles but he really struggled with that but Pascal's knees being instantly healed of her running eye sore but this is in church history brothers and sisters and then let me mention one more, because this person, this is very important, because he is a darling, a hero of cessationists. But Augustine, yeah, Augustine was the bishop of North Africa. Augustine, and what is special about Augustine? Well, he's an amazing theologian, probably the best theologian in church history. Cessationists talk about him all the time. I love him. But Augustine, this astute scholar of scripture, he started out as a cessationist. And then later in life, he converted, and he became a continuationist. And so he started believing in miraculous gifts. And so you can see this in the City of God. He wrote this big volume called The City of God. You'll find it in Book 22, Chapter 8. Look it up. Book 22, Chapter 8 in The City of God. I actually have it printed right here. And this whole chapter basically is titled, Of Miracles Which Were Wrought That the World Might Believe in Christ, and Which Have Not Ceased Since the World Believed. It's a very telling title. You, know, you kind of know where he's going. But these gifts, these miracles were wrought so that the world may believe in Christ and they have not ceased since the world believed, according to Augustine. And then what did he do? He just goes through testimony after testimony of miracles that he heard of firsthand. So, for example, he talked about a blind man who received his sight miraculously. 
in the city, in the city of Milan. He also talked about, he talked about a woman who had breast cancer. She was miraculously healed. He talked a lot about that one, very long. He talked about a healing of a, uh, a diseased foot that this man was terribly suffering with that the doctors could not figure out. But he was miraculously healed. A man who was paralyzed with hernia. That sounds very painful. But he was paralyzed with hernia, but he was miraculously healed. A man who was ill and near death, but he became completely healed and revived fully, according to Augustine. And then he talked about a demon-possessed farmer who was delivered and made sound and whole. And in fact, Augustine said, this was a neighbor of mine. He said, I saw this with my neighbor. He lived next to me. And he goes on and on. And so you see all these different miracles that Augustine himself testified to. And he said that it's through the church that these things were happening. Not just they were touched randomly, that they were zapped sitting out in the field. But it was through the church that these healings happened. And so what am I saying? It's just simply not true that these gifts and these miracles faded away in church history. It's just not true. Yes, was it not like the New Testament? Yeah. I mean, there were times where there was a lot of rebellion and sin in the church and no miracles were happening. There's plenty of stretches of that. And yet, all through church history, you see testimonies of miracles in the church doing and working miracles. And it's not just Augustine, because you're thinking, well, Augustine was a long time ago. But it's even men like Charles Wesley and John Wesley, his brother, but they testified to even the dead being raised. I think even Whitfield, who's a very conservative, reformed preacher, but he testified, going, yeah, the Wesleys, they saw that. He might not have seen it, but he testified. And even in this day and age, I mean, if you're wondering, well, what does that mean, Roy? Are we going to be a charismatic church? Are you charismatic? It's, no, not in the sense of those people I talked about before. But I'm talking about people like Martin Lloyd-Jones. He fully embraced all the gifts of the Spirit, and he longed to see them in his church. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers in this generation. John Piper. John Piper is a continuationist, if you know him. D.A. Carson, probably the world's greatest New Testament scholar. D.A. Carson is a continuationist. Wayne Grudem is a continuationist. He all these godly men and women who really know the Scriptures, who love the Lord, who preach the true gospel, they're not in it for glory or for manipulation or money. They truly want to know the Lord's will. They are continuations. And so we're not alone in this. I'm not alone in this. But this is the evidence in history. Amen. And so we're coming to a close. But then why does this all matter? Well, it matters because we live, as I said last week, in a dark time. I don't know if you guys realize this, but some of you guys who are younger, this is all you've known. But... We are at the lowest point in our nation's history in terms of church attendance and affiliation to Christianity. But for the first time, Gallup took a poll last year, 2021, and they said less than half of the church, uh, I'm sorry, less than half of the population of America go to church. Less than half for the first time in this nation. America was never like that. America was always 70% Christian, 80% Christian, 90% Christian. But for the first time in this history, we are less than half. Less than half. And that is quickly increasing rapidly. And so we are, at this very moment, seeing a great falling away. At this very moment. And yet, what is the only thing that could reverse that? Well, it has to be a work of God. It has to be the preaching of the true gospel. It's not just healings and signs and wonders. It is the preaching of the true word of God and the gospel. Amen. But along with that, if you look at scripture, there was always the verification, the validation of that preaching through signs and wonders. You know, J.P. Moreland, he was a professor at my seminary. He's still there. 
He's a world-class philosopher. He's even respected by non-Christians as a philosopher. But he did some research on his own, and he found that 70% of global evangelical growth has been due to signs and wonders. Now, does that mean all of them are healthy churches, healthy gospel centers? Jesus? No. But at least in terms of conversion, them accepting Jesus Christ, 70% of the global growth of the church was due to signs and wonders. So what does this mean? Is that the kingdom of God is not only about talk, it is about power. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, it is of power. It is of power. And so this is what we need, brothers and sisters, we're coming to a close, but we need to recapture the power of the true gospel, the full gospel. And I believe in the written word. I, I bank my life on it, absolutely. And yet, is there more, right? Is there more that we're missing? But we need the power of the gospel. And this is not our own power, but this is a gospel-shaped power. It is a gospel-shaped power. What is a gospel-shaped power? Jesus told Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, But Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is gospel-shaped power. It is the power of God that comes through weakness. When we are weak and dependent on the living God to do something, and then he does it, that is gospel power. What's the greatest example of that? Jesus on the cross, right? Jesus on the cross was the greatest example of gospel power. But more power was released when Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross than at any other time in history. More power is released when Jesus died on the cross. We saw visible signs of that in the gospels. There was a great earthquake. Dead saints came back to life. The temple curtain was torn in two. But even more than that, we know that was the greatest power because that is when the head of Satan was crushed. Amen? That was the prophecy of Genesis 3. That's when it happened. Jesus crushed the head of Satan when he died on the cross, his greatest moment of weakness. And so that is gospel-shaped power. And so then how does this apply to us? We need power, brothers and sisters. We need the power of God. We absolutely do. You know, as a minister, as a church planner, I mean, I struggle. Because I look at the church in the world, in, in the U.S., and even our church, and I go, God, what will it take for people to get converted, for them to get on fire with God, fire with you? What will it take? And I come here, and I believe in the Word of God, and I preach my brains out, but sometimes I, I go, God, but is there something that we're overlooking? If we need the power of God, brothers and sisters. We need gospel-shaped power, the kind that Jesus demonstrated. So what is one example of that, prayer? Isn't prayer gospel-shaped power? What, what is that? That's literally you going, I am in need, God. I'm weak. Please hear this prayer. Help me. And God says, yes. That's gospel-shaped power. What's another example? Preaching, proclaiming the word of God. This is foolishness to the world. Okay, this one I experience all the time. This is utter foolishness, and yet we open it up as if this actually is true, and we proclaim it, and that is gospel-shaped power. God works through that. God, I'm a weak vessel. Okay, this is foolishness to the world. Okay, I'm, a, I'm a fool to the world in believing this. And yet God works through it. Okay, what else is gospel-shaped power, brothers and sisters? This is my final point. We're coming to an end. What is gospel-shaped power? Spiritual gifts. Do you understand? Spiritual gifts. You're saying, God, I am nothing. I have nothing. I can offer nothing. But you've given me this gift. God, I want to believe in it. I want to believe in it, God. Yes, I can serve. I could be hospitable. But even more than that, God, maybe you can give me something that somebody else needs to hear, like a verse. You know, yesterday, I'll share this real quick, but I was talking to a brother in our church, and I forgot, but I actually have this app on my phone. It's an Evernote app, 
where basically I have a folder that says Rhema. And these are specific verses. And they're specific verses, right? Chapter and verse that people have given to me over the years. A lot of them from my mom, but some from pastors. I think recently I shared one where I was in my office late at night, discouraged. This is during COVID. I was really having a hard time. And I was studying one of the Psalms. And as I was reading that, I literally read a verse. And then a moment after, my friend in Arizona, who's a pastor, a church planner, he texted me that verse. Going, hey, Roy, um, I just wanted to encourage you with this verse. I was praying for you just now. And this is the verse that God put on my heart. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. I had just read that verse in my Bible and preparing my sermon. And God highlighted it for me. And it was a beautiful verse about you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm of David. And so I have this little folder on my app with all these verses that God has hand-delivered, I believe, to me when I most needed it. What is that? What is that? I believe that is believers, precious believers, exercising their spiritual gift. That is the power of God. The moment I read that, that example in the office, I came alive, right? I mean, I forgot about my discouragement. It's like, oh my gosh, really, God? You're speaking to me right now. And so why don't we just come before the Lord? This is what we need. We need the gospel. We need the word of God. We need the spirit of God working in his fullness. Amen. So let's just come before the Lord right now. Father God, we thank you so much. We went through a lot today. We went through a lot of scriptures. But Lord God, but we need to hear. We need to understand. We need to be biblical. Not the full, not the kind of biblical that other people might think is the full version. But Lord God, we need what is actually stated in Scripture. And what I see is, Lord, you offer spiritual gifts, even the miraculous gifts, all of them, for a multitude of various purposes. And so, Lord God, please, Lord God, can you please make this true of our church even, that we would actually seek you and that we would actually strive to be truly biblical. That we would be like the early church in Acts 4, 29. When they were being persecuted, they were being attacked, they went back to their homes and had a prayer meeting. And this is what they prayed. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God boldly. Lord, that should be our heart. That should be our heart. Lord, there are many challenges. Lord, even this past week, many things were taken from us. But that's the least of our worries. But there is false gospels being preached there is false doctrine there is worldliness there is apathy people just don't care we are more concerned about 
what we're going to be doing with our friends later this week, then your holy word and who you are. Lord, all these things are challenges. And Lord God, I don't want to just be a church that just talks and talks and talks. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It is of power. The power of the gospel, gospel-shaped power. Please, Lord God, work. Work in our church. Give us the same heart and attitude like the early church. Lord, do you see our, do you see their threats? Give us boldness, God, to proclaim your word with signs and wonders and miracles. Lord, show yourself. Please, Lord God. Give us that kind of power. Give us that kind of boldness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're just going to spend a brief moment as we do every Sunday, but let's just come before the Lord and let's just pray. Again, I don't know where you guys are coming from, but if all of this is a little too much for you and you're like, whoa, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to even consider all of this, not yet. That's okay. Just say, Lord, help me to just know what you want me to know. Show me what you want me to see. For others, if you're ready to really just maybe explore and learn more or even pursue certain spiritual gifts, then there are great resources and we want everything to be done biblically. But even before that, that seems a little bit further out. We want to have good, solid understanding. It all, it all starts with the mind. Nobody can embrace something if they don't understand it. My wife said that this morning. <laughs> we were talking. But nobody can embrace something if they don't first accept it in their minds. And so I encourage you, search it out. Go back to scripture. Look at what it really says. Not just once, but repeatedly, repeatedly. Clear, direct statements of the times we're living in, what we should be seeing right now in the church age. Just clear, repeated statements in scripture. And then God will show you. So let's just come before the Lord. Let, yeah, whether your prayer is to be shown these things in Scripture or maybe you're ready to even move forward, let's just come before the Lord. Thank you, God. So Heavenly Father, we just come before you, Lord, and we worship you. And Lord Jesus, I know that today is just a step. Perhaps it's a baby step. But at least, Lord God, you have it on the radar, our radars. And Lord, I truly mean this when I say it, Lord. You know my heart. You know all things. But I just want to follow what your word says. If none of this is truly of you in your word, I don't want it. I don't want to touch it with a pull. I, I, don't, I don't want it, Lord. But if this is truly of you and what you have, your plan for the church and the age of the Spirit, then, Lord, I want it. I want it. I want all of it. I only want what you want for me in your word. 
That is it. Because I know, I've come to know, Lord, that that is what is best. I can't improve upon this. That is what is best. You are always proven true. You are always proven right. Anybody who veers from the Word of God, who does anything contrary to the Word of God, they suffer consequences, some greater, some less. But Lord God, we just want to follow us in your Word. So Lord God, we thank you, Father. Could the church today, especially in America, be struggling because we have veered in many ways, not just this area, but in many ways. We have veered from your word. Please bring us back. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you all the glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.